for the choir director, according to Judithan, a psalm of David. My soul waits in silence for God only. From him is my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation. My stronghold, I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will you assail a man that you may murder him, all of you, like a leaning wall, like a tottering fence? They have counseled only to, uh, to thrust him down from his high position. They delight in falsehood. They bless with their mouth, but inwardly they curse. Selah. My soul wait in silence for God only. For my hope is from him. He is my rock and my salvation. My stronghold, I shall not be shaken. On God, my salvation and my glory rest. The rock of my strength, my refuge is in God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Selah. Men of low degree are only vanity and men of rank are a lie. And the balances they go up, they are together lighter than a breath. Do not trust in oppression and do not vainly hope in robbery. If riches increase, do not set your heart upon them. Once God has spoken, twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God and loving kindness is yours, O Lord, for you recompense a man according to his work. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for your word. Father, thank you for the gift of grace that your word is to us. Father, thank you that you have revealed yourself to us. For Father, on our own, we never could have found you. We never would have sought you. We never would have understood you if we had encountered you in our own mind and our own strength. So Father, thank you for this gracious gift, this revelation that you've given to us. And that you allow us to share it together in community at moments like these. May our hearts and our minds be transformed by it. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning we get to see Jesus as our one true rock. We just sang about it. The song that was before this is very fitting for the psalm that we're going to be walking through together this morning. And what I like about this psalm, and not all of the psalms do this, but we've been through... 61 other psalms to this point. Um, Occasionally, they'll have like a chorus or a refrain. They'll have something in the psalm that repeats. And so I want to start with that because this psalm starts with that and then it repeats it again later, coming close to verse 5 and verse 6. And so notice how this refrain works. It says, my soul is in silence. My soul waits in silence. Now, what I I like about the Hebrew part of the text here, in English, there's a provision given. Depending on what English version of the Bible you're reading from, uh, as you know, I use the NASB. um, The word waits is an italicized word in the English Bible. Again, don't know what version you're using. I don't have all of them memorized. But if you're using the NASB, Waits is an italicized word, which means that the English translators inserted the word waits into the English text to help the sentence structure make sense. In the actual Hebrew text, the word for wait is not there. There's not a word for wait in the Hebrew text, but it's provided in the English text to try to make it flow and have some smoothness to it. I, on the other hand, am a really big fan of things staying complicated if it means they have better meaning. 
Yeah? So look, so if things can stay complicated but have better meaning, you say, Philip, how is that even possible? If it's complicated, that doesn't improve the meaning. Oh, no, no, no. Complicated things sometimes have much clearer meanings. Okay? I'll give you an example. This has never happened in my relationship with my wife, but doing pastoral counseling, I've heard from other people with their wives this exact thing. Guys will come to me and they'll say, hey, I'm I'm having a problem with my wife. And I'm like, well, kind of back it up for me. Tell me tell me how that started. Like, how did you get to this place where you feel like you're having a problem with your wife? Well, I asked her about this thing that I was wanting to go do on Saturday last weekend. And she said, that's fine. And so I went and did it. And now she's mad at me. The phrase that's fine is a very simple phrase. It's uncomplicated. But it made matters much more difficult. Because he didn't understand the translation of what that's fine actually meant. Whereas as his wife had said the very complicated thing, no. It would have made matters a lot more simple. Like there'd have been a lot less confusion. Oh, it would have been complicated because he'd have been like, well, why no? And they would have had this whole conversation on the front end. But just saying the word that needed to be said made it more, would have made it more complicated, but it would have been better, better understood. So in this case, the NASB supplies the word weights to kind of make it smooth. But I think it actually muddies up what's really being said in the Hebrew text. So I want to read this without the word weights. And it's not going to be smooth. It's going to be complicated. It's going to sound weird, but I think it's going to give us better understanding. The better way to read this is my soul in silence for God only. We just got rid of the waiting part. If we threw the waiting part in there, it seems a lot simpler. Leaving the wait part out does make the sentence way more complicated. Because, by the way, there's no verb when you do that in our English translation. But I think we get a way better understanding of what's going on when we leave that word out. My soul in silence for God only. Well, what is my soul doing in silence? I think that's the point David's trying to get across here. Is it waiting? Is it hoping? Is it anguishing? Is it, is it pain-filled? Is, is there confusion? Is there sorrow? We, we don't know. But what we do know is that whatever's going on with David right now, it is best for him to be silent before the Lord. It's best for him not to talk. Now, I don't know if you've ever been in situations and circumstances like that. But friends, there are times in life where it's best to just be quiet. It's best to just be quiet. I had a professor in seminary and we were in a a class on pastoral counseling and care. And... He asked the question, he said, listen, some of you have, have, because there were all ranges of guys and and ministry experience and ages in the class. And he said, some of you have been through this. Some of you are going to go through this when you're in pastoral ministry. He said, but if someone comes to you, let's just say, for example, a, a, a young family comes to you and they just found out that their five month old newborn has been diagnosed with an extremely rare form of cancer and will probably be dead before they're one year old. And they come to you and they want some some pastoral care. 
What are you going to say to them? That was the question he threw out to our class. What are you going to say to them? And of course, we all dug around trying to find words to say to somebody in a situation like that. And one older gentleman who'd been in pastoral ministries for quite a long time and had decided to come back to seminary after having been in pastoral ministry for a while, after all of us kind of fumbled around for a way to answer this question, he said, you don't, you don't say anything to them. Not at that first meeting. You just sit with them quietly and let them cry. And that was profound. Because sometimes silence is the only right response to something. And whatever it is that David is going through, his soul must be in silence for God. Only God can speak for me, whatever it is that I'm going through. Only, only God's word is the, is the foundation. I need God's voice. I don't need my voice. I'm going to be silent and I'm going to let God speak. Because, friends, here's the thing. At the end of the day, God's word is greater than our word. Whatever words you think you might can articulate in the worst possible circumstances of your life will fall short compared to the glory and greatness of the word of God. Nothing that you have to say is better than what God has to say. And whatever cataclysmic thing David is dealing with in the psalm, he is recognizing that the only real source of comfort and joy and hope and goodness and peace that he might even begin to possibly find is going to come from the mouth of God, not from his own mouth. So in silence, my soul in silence for God only. You supply the verb. And SB supplied weights. You supply your verb, whatever it is, but in silence. And what is it that we receive from him? Notice in the second part of verse one, that salvation is from the Lord. From him is my salvation. And I love how David breaks down some pictures of this salvation. He's my rock, my salvation, my stronghold. There's this wonderful, firm foundation that comes to us from our covenant relationship with God in Jesus Christ that is founded upon the revealed word of God. David says, I'm going to keep my mouth shut. I'm going to hear from the voice of God. Why? Because God is my firm footing. He's my rock. He's my stronghold. He's, if you want it, hey, listen, there's nothing new under the sun. You make fun of people about their safe spaces all you want to. God was David's safe space. I'm going to run into the stronghold of the Lord. I'm going to stand on the rock that is God. He's going to be my great refuge. He's going to be a banner of truth over me. He's going to be the one who delivers me. He's going to be the one who keeps me safe. He's the one who's going to make provision for me. I'm going to keep my mouth shut and I'm going to let God speak because God is all in all that I need. And then notice what he says, and I want you to see a really awesome transition from the first time the refrain is read to the second time that the refrain is read. Notice what he says at the beginning of this. He talks about God being his rock, his salvation, his stronghold. And notice the back end of verse 2. It says, I shall not be greatly shaken. Now, you put that adverb on there. I shall not be greatly shaken. Shaken. What is that 
imply that you might be shaken a little. I'm going to be shaken some, but not a bunch. I'll be shaken a little bit, maybe even a moderate level, but not greatly. I'll feel it, but I won't fall over from it. Now, I want you to notice what happens when he does the refrain the second time. Slide down to verse 6. He only is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold. I shall not be shaken. In the course of the song, there's an upgrade. When David starts out and he's looking at the problem that he's facing, whatever that problem is, and you know, David had a lot of problems. Amen. Amen. I can relate to David. They've had a lot of problems. Some of those problems were brought on him by others. Some of those problems he brought on himself. But David went through a lot of stuff. And when he starts out this, he's looking at his life. He's looking at his circumstances. He's looking at what he's going through. And he says, I won't be greatly shaken. And then he starts unfolding God's work. In his life, he turns his attention away from whatever it is that he's dealing with that's causing him to have a soul in silence before God. And he starts focusing on the work that God is going to do in his life. And when he shifts his focus from his circumstances to the glory of God's work and the glory of God's hand, he moves away from I won't be greatly shaken to I won't be shaken at all. Because, friends, you will be shaken a little or maybe even a moderate amount if your focus is split between the work of the Lord and the work that you try to do. But when you stop focusing on you and focus completely on the rock that is Jesus Christ, you'll come to realize that no matter how bad your circumstances are, you won't be shaken at all because Jesus won't be shaken at all. And I like that how that's different when he makes this shift. And so I, I wanted to break the refrain out and not just flow through with it. And I want you to see the two things that are built around the refrain. The first thing that comes after this first refrain, this first chorus, is an indictment against the wicked. And it's actually split into two parts as well. Verses 3 and 4 and verses 9 and 10 speak to... Those people who live in and practice wickedness rather than living in the covenant reality of the Lord. The first thing that we see about the wicked and this indictment against them is that is that David speaks out against the violence of man. You see this in verse three. How long will you assail a man that you may murder him? All of you He's speaking to a whole group of people like a leaning wall, like a tottering fence. There's this violence that is inherent in mankind. Uh, David talks about it in other Psalms. Paul reiterates it in Romans chapters uh, one, two, and three. But there's this, these, these, these hands and these feet and these mouths that are quick to shed blood, quick to spread poison. Friends, it doesn't take long to look around at our world 
and to see how profoundly violent fallen man is. Real violence, actual violence. As most of you who know have been around for a while, my wife and I grew up in Memphis, Tennessee. That's where we spent a substantial portion of our lives. I graduated from college there. And it's just, it was just common for us. Like we didn't think anything about it. To regularly and consistently hear and sometimes see violence. Because it's a profoundly violent city. Top five in violent crime and murder per capita most years for the past 30 years of its existence. There's a lot of reasons why that might be, but that's just what we got used to. And then we moved away from there and we would come back and visit and suddenly we felt kind of uncomfortable because we weren't around that all the time. You know, we got to Tyler a bunch of years later and, you know, when I first, it was really funny when I first got here, I just wanted to get to know the city. Like Tyler, I just wanted to figure out. So I just went randomly driving all over the town. And when I got back to the people that I was staying with, they said, hey, well, where'd you go today? And I started naming some of the places that I went. They said, you went over there by yourself? And I was like, was I not supposed to? Because there's nowhere in Tyler that's anything like the places I used to go by myself in Memphis. Just not even close. I've never one time felt uncomfortable anywhere in Tyler, Texas. Praise God. It's a great place to raise your kids. But we would go back to Memphis and you would hear about carjackings and you'd hear about just people getting robbed in a parking lot. And just, you know, I I still vividly remember a bunch of years ago when we still lived near Memphis. The murder rate was ridiculously high that year. And they, they gave a news story sometime in August. They said, they said, we are tied for the most murders ever had in the city, and it's just August. The very next day, there was another murder, and they caught the guy, and they arrested him. They asked him, why did you kill that guy? He said, I wanted to set the record. It's the whole reason why he killed the person. Friends, our world, because of the fall, is filled with violence. And it's really easy for us to wag our finger at, at real, physical, tangible, outward violence. But friends, violence is wrapped up in the heart of all of us and it expresses itself in a variety of forms. You might not feel motivated to go out and rob someone or carjack somebody or murder somebody to set a record or whatever. There may be a great restraint on your life. The Holy Spirit may be doing a great thing in your life. But the way that you speak to your kids sometimes when they don't do exactly the way you want them to do, but they didn't exactly do something wrong. It was just irritating to you. Didn't make you have the kind of day you want it to have. Somebody maybe belittled you a little bit. And so instead of dealing with the way you felt belittled, you went and found somebody to badmouth that person to. Guess what? You're performing violence with your mouth. This violence rests in the heart of all men and all women and can only be redeemed through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. I heard somebody giving a speech one time and they asked the crowd, they said, how many of you would like for there to be world peace? Of course, everybody cheered and said, yes, yes, I want there to be world peace. And how many of you would be willing to do whatever you have to do 
to help accomplish world peace. Oh, yeah, me, I would do whatever I have to do if it meant there'd, there'd never be war and violence again. And said, okay, so how many of you then would be willing to start with your ex-husband or your ex-wife if you have one? Ooh. There was no positive response from the crowd at that moment. How many of you be willing to start with that person who hurt you or that boss who fired you wrongly or that person who took that promotion from you or that person who did that thing to your kid that, that made your kid upset or they, they started filling in blanks of things that happen to all of us every day. That parent that wronged you and, and didn't treat you well that, that caused you to have these psychological issues that you have now. How many of you be willing to make peace with them because making peace with the people closest to you is the first step to global peace? How many be willing to do that? And of course, the crowd kept getting quieter and quieter and quieter. Because there's an inherent violence in the heart of all men, all women, all created people because of the fall. And David indicts the wicked. He says, he says, you, you know, you want to you want to assail and you want to murder. You want to you create a life that's like a, a leaning wall or a tottering fence. It's unstable. And then he starts talking about the schemes of the wicked. In verse four, they counsel to thrust him down from his high position. They delight in their falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. There's this hypocrisy, this two facedness that comes from the wicked. Now, this morning, I don't even want to apologize for this. If you're here this morning and you feel like you are righteous. And the thing that I'm reading to you is describing you and you're kind of getting mad because you're like, look, I know I'm a righteous person, but you keep talking about stuff that I do. And you're saying that that's things wicked people do. I would encourage you to not be mad at me, but instead reevaluate why you think you're righteous. If you delight in falsehood, if you bless with your mouth, but inwardly you curse. If that's the way you live your life, if that's what marks you as a human being. The scripture puts you in the category of the wicked. I didn't put you in that category. The scripture did. And so he brings this indictment against them. And then if you shift all the way down to verse 9, he talks about this vanity of hoping in the overall human condition. Notice what it says. Men of low degree are a vanity. Men of rank are a lie. Listen, if you live your life according to the principle of there's the haves and the have-nots, if you live your life according to the concept that somehow a person's social position somehow determines their worth and value in this world, you have believed a lie. A profound lie. Because the Lord Jesus Christ in his incarnate form when he was God on earth, the God man walking around in human form, was not a have. He was part of a family that was a have not. He was of low social standing, low social position, low socioeconomic reality. That's where he was. And he was the king of kings and the Lord of lords while he was in that position. The vast majority of the followers of Jesus had no grand social standing, no high educational level. The world was shocked when they would stand up and do the things that they would do because aren't these the fishermen? 
Who, who are these people? Why should we listen to them? They have no good social standing. They have no influence. They have no sway in politics. They no, have no high level of resources. So David points out this vanity and the hope for the human condition. Notice what happens with both groups of people. The people who are on the bottom and the people who are on the top. Into the balances they go up. He's making a death, re- a death reference here. The justice balances of death. They are together, both of them, the rich and the poor, the high standing and the low standing, are like a breath. Friend, your life is a vapor. doesn't matter what your bank account says. Song, uh, Solomon and his great wisdom in the scripture, the rich and the poor both die alike. Say, so Philip, man, this is heavy today. Listen, there's only a couple of sure things in the world. It's death and taxes. And taxes even aren't as certain as death is. They're just not. You will have to face the reality of your own mortality. And there are people who trust in the human condition. If I can just climb up high enough, if I can just get enough resources, if I can just get enough political influence, if I can just have the right set of friends, if I can just accomplish the right sort of things, if I can just make my life look so, if I can get the right kind of house in the right kind of neighborhood and, and do the, get the right kind of education and do the... Listen, all of those things are fine. There's nothing inherently wrong with any of those things. But if you're trusting in those things, rather than trusting in the Lord, you're believing a lie. Those things are all tools that God can use to impact this world for his kingdom. They are not tools to be used by you to try to have some sort of mindset of superiority over against other people. And notice David continues with this. The things that we don't need to trust in. Don't trust in oppression. Say, well, who would dare do that? Who would, who would trust in oppression? Friends, it... You guys know that I'm very cautious about being political from the pulpit. I'm not a fan. I don't like doing that. But there have been some who've asked me, hey, could you maybe occasionally speak to political realities when it's fitting from the pulpit? Here it's very fitting. Don't trust in oppression. So that's not a political statement. If you don't think that what I just said is not a political statement, you've not been paying attention to politics. You say, well, which side is oppressing us? Yes. 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 No offense to those of you who are politicians or actively involved in politics. I pray that you do a great work for Christ in that arena. But as it currently stands, our political system is one of oppression for everyone except other rich people and politicians. Thank you. I rarely get an allowed amen or yes from Shane McGuire, but I got one right there. Yes. Don't trust in oppression. Friends, and it's not just our culture. If you go back and study politics, nation building, kingdom building... The fact that we are fallen and then we try to govern ourselves is going to be coupled with the wicked bent toward oppressing people. Because it is easier to get what you want from people who are oppressed than from people who are free. 
And friends, all you have to do is read about the history of Israel, their relationship with Egypt their relationship with the Philistines, their relationship with each other, their relationship with the Romans with Israel during Jesus' time, uh, and then just all of the governing systems after the close of the Scripture, governing systems that were around during the time of the Scripture that weren't part of the biblical story. And what you see regularly are people trusting in oppression. That's what you see. And so what David... Now hear me. Notice who he is when he says this. Who is David? King. King David says, don't trust in oppression. What was the king who was the king? Probably while he's writing the psalm still. The king right before him that he's taking his place, Saul. What did he do? Oppress people. Don't trust in oppression. Don't do it. One of the greatest curses that fell on David's kingdom. When he took the census that included the people that it should not have included so that he could be arrogant and cocky and strut about and look at how great this nation is. And he forced a man who knew better to do something he knew he should not be doing, namely count those men. What was he doing in that moment? He was exercising oppression. He was using his power to force someone to do something immoral and ungodly and unethical for his own personal gain. And it led to disaster. David understands. Don't trust in oppression. Don't trust in robbery is the next one. But we've already talked about taxes, so we'll move to the next thing. And then he says, don't trust in riches. Don't trust in riches. Friends, listen, it's okay. I had a professor who said, and I'll never forget. I had a professor who said, listen, it is okay for you to have money. It's not okay for your money to have you. He said, there's nothing in the Bible that says that it is unmoral or ungodly for people who walk with the Lord to have Super abundant amounts of wealth. You can't find it. Not there. You can find some principles about the dangers of having super abundant amounts of wealth and what that might do to you and how that might could be misused. But the actual possession of great wealth, there's nothing wrong with that. The problem for most people is that no matter how much they have, they don't have it, it has them. It becomes a master over them. They become a slave to the thing rather than the slave being a servant of them. So don't trust in your riches. So this is the indictment he gives against the wicked. These violence and these schemes and this vanity of hoping in the human condition and this trusting in things that are not the Lord. And David calls out against those things. And then in... uh, in 7 and 8 and 11 and 12, he makes a shift and he turns our attention to the glory of God. Because that's where our trust should rest. It should rest in the person and the work and the splendor and the beauty of the glory of God who is manifest in the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice verse 7. On God, my salvation And my glory rest. Again, that's an italicized word. Insert it for clarity. 
If you leave it out, it becomes like just before, complicated but simple. On God, my salvation and my glory. Just leave it there. Dude, that's a complicated sentence. Yeah, it is. But it actually makes a lot more sense. Everything about your salvation and everything about your glory. Because here's the thing, friends. You have the wrong mindset if you think the purpose of you walking with Jesus is to be mundane and unglorious. No. And this bothers people when we talk about this this way. You are not called to be mundane and unglorious. You are called to be conformed to the image of Jesus, to be seated in heavenly places in him, to reign and rule with him, to wear his righteousness like a robe, to be crowned with his glory and his life, and for your name to be his name. You are supposed to reflect the very image of the Most High God in this world. There's nothing mundane and unglorious about that. There's a reason why humans have a tendency toward pride. It's because we have been made by God to display glory. And what happens is with pride is when we find ourselves glorious in anything else but being an image bearer of God. That's where pride comes in. There really is... There really is some truth to the notion of the human person looking out at the rest of the creation and going, look at me. That's what you've been made for by God, because when the rest of creation looks at you, they're supposed to see the image of God. That's what they're supposed to see. And if you're screaming out to the rest of creation, look at me. And what you're showing them is the actual image of God. You are actually living your life correctly. The problem for all of us is that our glory and often our salvation, we don't place it on God and his image. Instead, we place it on everything else. Look at me, the thing that I did. Look at me, this accomplishment that I have. Look at me, this thing that I built. Look at me, this money that I've earned. Look at me, this education I've received. Look at me, this enemy that I defeated. Look at me and my great glory that I've done. Look at me in the way that I saved myself. Look at me in the prayer that I prayed. Look at me in the religious thing that I did. Look at me so that you can see me. That's pride. That's the vain glory of the wicked that David just indicted. But instead, if I'm screaming out to the world, look at me, I want you to see the God on whom my salvation rests. Then you are living your life as you've been created to be. And that's where David lands here. He says, on God, my salvation and my glory. The rock of my strength, my refuge is in God. This rock, this strength, this refuge, all the things that were in the chorus and the refrain. And then notice what he says. It comes down to faith. Have faith in God. Because friends, when I look around at the world 
and I see the violence of man and I see the schemes of men and I see the oppression of men and the robbery of men and the trusting in riches and the vapor of life. And I see these kinds of things and I and I feel like I'm being shaken and I'm trying to walk with God and I'm trying to bear his image and I'm trying to love Jesus and I'm trying to love those around me through Jesus and I'm trying to be conformed to the image of Jesus. And, and these things are all happening and it just doesn't seem it seems like the wicked are winning and they're succeeding and they're triumphing and, and it's. It seems like the righteous are being crushed and being pressed low. Left to myself, I would just abandon it all. I'd become incredibly pragmatic and I'd be like, this just doesn't work. So what does David encourage us to do? The same thing the New Testament encourages us to do. Trust in him at all times, O people. Have Faith in God. And notice what he wants you to do while you're having faith in God. Pour out your heart before him. Do you trust God enough? This is a serious question I want you to take home and wrestle with it. Do you trust God enough to tell him how you really feel about what's going on in your life right now. Because most of us don't. Because most of us are not willing to pray prayers like they prayed in the Psalms, where David shakes his fist at heaven and says, Where are you, God? Why do the wicked seem to win out? Why do the righteous seem to be crushed? Why are my enemies surrounding me? Why do I feel as if you are far away? Why do I feel as if you slumber and you sleep and you do not care? That's how David prayed. David had enough faith in God to pour his heart out to him. Had an old mentor a long time ago, kind enough to share this thought with me. I want to share it with you. If you have something that you want to say to God about God, you should just go ahead and say it because an all-knowing God already knows that's how you feel. You might as well just verbalize it. That's what David did. And that's what he's encouraging people of faith to do. Trust in God and pour your heart out to him. And then notice how he closes this, this beautiful glory of God. Notice what he says. Once God has spoken twice, I have heard this, that power belongs to God and loving kindness is yours, O Lord, for you recompense a man according to his work. Now, we're not going to get into this. We're past time, but I just want to point out something to you that we've not really seen a lot in the Psalms. We'll see that more later as we keep going through the Psalms. There's been a couple of times where it's been in there, but this is one of the clearest examples of this. There's a Hebrew poetic device where it uses progression of numbers and building to make an incredibly aggressive point. Like it does it on purpose. It does it right here. Notice, once God has spoken, or God has said one thing, and twice I have heard this, or these two things I have heard. And then notice he names three things after that. He says, Power belongs to God. 
Loving kindness is from the Lord. He recompenses a man according to his work. Do you see the numerical progression? Once God speaks, twice I hear. Here's the three things. One, two, three. That's intentionally done in Hebrew poetry to show the power of a point. Like they're trying to drive home the idea by doing numerical progression. And there's usually some very deep theological principle built into that numerical progression. And it's actually found here. I want you to see what it is. God, hear me this morning. God speaks one truth. There are not a lot of little truths from God. God's word is one unified unit of truth from start to finish. That's what it is. And though the heaven and the earth pass away, your word will endure forever. It's unified. It's singular. It was embodied in the one word, the Lord Jesus Christ, who called himself the one truth. God speaks one word. But we hear many truths from God's one truth. Listen, it's not that there is a trinity and it's not that there is an incarnation. Yeah, but maybe God isn't as sovereign as I think that he is. No, there's not a buffet of truths to choose from. There's one truth and we as human beings hear truths From that one truth, we hear about the Trinity, we hear about the incarnation, we hear about God's sovereignty, we hear about his work on the cross, we hear about transformational sanctification, we hear about all of these things. And we see them as all different things, but they're all just the one truth of God. And in us hearing these things from God, we begin to have things unfold for us that impact our lives, like all power belongs to God. Loving kindness comes from him. God judges the people according to the things that they live in in their lives. This is what David is breaking out for us. And so one of the great glorious things about God, because remember, David's talking about the glory of God and how we stand on that and we rest in that and we have faith in that. One of the great and glorious things about God, I say all of that to get around to say this. God has been kind to us and has given us his one revealed Truth. You do not have to guess what God is like. And you do not have to guess what you are like compared to God. And you do not have to guess what your great problem is when you compare yourself to a holy God. And you do not have to guess... What God has done to close the gap between himself and us in the midst of the problem that we have. God in his profound grace, kindness and wisdom has given us a revelation of himself. His one truth that we might know with certainty who he is, what he's like and what he expects of us. That's glorious. That's that's profoundly amazing. Because how many times in your own life and in the lives of people that you've encountered? I'm just trying to figure out God's will. 
And usually it's something just ridiculous, you know. It usually is something ridiculous. Ha, I just, we're trying to figure out, we're, we're at the church committee meeting and we're trying to figure out God's will. Yeah, what, what's the great issue that we're struggling with on God's will? Blue carpet or red, we're just trying to figure out God's will. It's usually something ridiculous. It's usually something ridiculous. Let me just break it down for you really simple right here. I'm going to go ahead and give you a huge synopsis of this book just real fast in a sentence. God's will for you is that you be conformed to the image of Jesus. That's it. So how do I do that? He tells you all about it right here. You don't have to guess. You don't have to worry. You don't have to be anxious. You don't have to wonder. You don't have to. I wonder if this is a way that would be okay for me to look like Jesus. No. What a kindness that God has shown us. He could have said, hey, you need to be like Jesus and then just walked away. Figure it out, smart human people. He didn't do that. And so in this glorying in the Lord that David is doing, not only is he glorying in the fact that God is our salvation and glory, not only is he glorying in the fact that we are able to have this faith to trust in God by his grace, not only is he doing that, but he's also declaring that God speaks one truth to us, a unified, whole, revealed truth where we see magnificent things that we never would have seen on our own and we don't have to guess to try to figure them out. God has been gracious to us and he manifests that truth in the person of Jesus Christ who is, if you were to sub his name in in this psalm, our one true rock. Amen. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that he is our rock, that he is our salvation, that he is our refuge, that he is our stronghold. Thank you that he is the revelation of God in truth form. Thank you that we are being conformed to his image. Thank you that you love us with the love that you love him. Thank you that we are seated with him in heavenly places. Thank you that we are partakers of his glory. Thank you that we are robed in his righteousness. Thank you that we are crowned with his glory and with his life. Thank you that we get to participate in his resurrection. Thank you that we are his inheritance and that we are his love gift back to you, the Father, through the abiding presence of the Spirit, whole triune God working together to conform us back to where we should have been as our initial created form, image bearers displaying the glory of God. Thank you that all of these things are true and that in your grace, for your glory, you have done this work in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.